welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a huge guest, one of the biggest of all time, returning to the show from a little band called The Circle Jerks, a little band called Black Flag, and a little band called Off, my buddy. Uncle Keith Morris is here today on the show again. Yes, that's right. More on that in a second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, head over to the email address turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do. I love you, buddy. I love you, brother. And I mean that literally. He's actually like my, bro- my brother. So I love you, Tristan, so much. Thank you for all you do. And uh, he'll get the message to me. Tristan also runs the Turned Out of Punk Facebook page and Instagram page. Both of those are found uh, at Turned Out of Punk on their respective platforms. If you want to get in touch with me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by, by telling all your friends, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy the podcast that we do each and every week here. You can also support the show by... Um, uh, subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice or, or specifically iTunes. You can also support it by heading over to the patreon.com slash turned out a punk page and checking out some of the stuff we do there. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of you that do do that and make the show possible uh, with your uh, support. And speaking of support, this show would also not be possible without the kind support of the fine folks of Vans who a few years ago said, Damien, we love what you do. Uh, and we know it's a, you know, you're, you're doing your own thing. Just keep doing your own thing. Just just don't do it out of your own pocket as much anymore. And they gave me some money to help me cover costs here. And I I can't thank them enough for that. It really, it really does help. And uh, that is that. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, returning to the show, is my friend, my buddy, Keith Morris. Now, I met Keith a, a while ago, a number of years ago. Uh, he got up and sang some songs with Fucked Up, and we've done that a few times with him, been on tour with Off, and it's it's surreal to me because I really don't know if I would have been in, involved in punk rock if it weren't for the Circle Jerks. Now, I got into a bunch of bands kind of at once, but the Circle Jerks were really the band that I focused in on, uh, became a huge fan of this band, and actually one of the first shows that I went to go and see was the Aborted uh, Circle Jerks reunion show in Toronto, which is where I met Mike. We go into this on the show, so I'm not going to repeat it all right now. But this band is just so important to me. I'd even say they're more important to me than than Black Flag. Uh, I, I love the Circle Jerks. I obviously love what Keith did in Black Flag and love what he did in Off. And so, you know, getting to meet him and and getting to, you know, play with him on stage and tour with him, it's, it's really one of the great joys that I've gotten out of this entire experience of... Uh, of doing this as a career. And so Keith is someone that I've wanted to have on the show and I've tried to have on the show a number of times. And, you know, Keith will be the first guy to admit he's not one for the modern technology. He doesn't have a cell phone. Doesn't, I I can't picture him as being someone that, uh, you know, wiles away his days playing angry birds or anything like that. So, you know, getting Keith on the show, I've tried a few times. I've even called him a few times to make it happen. And it's just, it just never quite clicked. And so finally, once again, thank you to Tristan and thank you to this brand new super deluxe edition of Group Sex, which has just been reissued on the fantastic Trust Records. 
and and you can pick this thing up. If you do not own this record, if you've not heard this record, you, you got to change that immediately. And if you do not own this record, this is a great opportunity to get it because there's Keith goes into all this, why you should get it. He does the hard sell in the episodes. So I don't have to do it for you now. What I do have to do now, though, is warn you that, unfortunately, because Keith is not the biggest fan of, of the modern technologies, uh, the reception has some issues. I spent a lot of time and, and cleaned it up as best I could. But but it's, it's, I'd be lying if I said it was 100%. But, you know, once again, we are the people that listen to practice tapes that have been tape traded to the point of sounding like garbage. So this sounds better than than a Ratchis uh, practice tape. You know, put put it that way. Uh, so this is uh, this is one that I've wanted to get to for a long time. We we have a lot of fun with this one. There are some there's some hot takes. There are some hot takes with Mr. Keith Morris. So I am not going to ramble on. But one thing I also have to tell you about because it gets brought up in this episode, and in the episode I said that this thing has not been released, but it has now finally be, been released. What I am talking about is Punk as Fuck, which is a collaboration between Flood Magazine. And myself, where we have gone out and, and well, we actually did this a number of years ago, but we went out and we interviewed all these different people about punk rock and talked to them about the importance of their city and their scene to their musical journey. And it's a lot of fun. And the first video has dropped and it features myself taking, uh, <laughs> it sounds, sounds like a best show call when I say it out loud, but it's myself taking Steve Albini and Don Bowles from The Germs to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles, which is the only restaurant in Los Angeles that Steve Albini is really a fan of. And The Germs are the only L.A. punk band that he likes. Now, I was not really aware of this before we started the interview, and, uh, oh, I don't want to reveal the twist at the end, but stick around. Please stick around for the twist at the end of that video. You can check that thing out over at Flood Magazine. You can check it out on YouTube. Uh, I will put some links to it. Uh, hopefully, uh, well, I've got some links to it on my social media. Check it out. My dinner with Steve Albini, Don Bowles at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. My dinner, my breakfast. It's super early in the morning. But that, you know, someone in our party was still ordering beers, so it was dinner somewhere. And, uh, whew, ooh, I, I'm stoked for you to see that. Okay, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the god, Keith Morris on Turned Out a Punk! Thank you so much for doing the show. Damien, you don't need to thank me. I always do, my friend. Like this is I know you do, but it's just, you know, you you at a certain point, it's just we 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 recognize each other's importance as to like you're one of my modern heroes. It's like we're not supposed to have heroes, and it's like fuck that crap. I got I've got all sorts of heroes. I got modern heroes. I've I've got like one of my favorite guitar players is Mick Ronson, who played in the Spiders from Mars with David Bowie. You know, and I. <clears throat> have been in these uh conversations like i talked with randy randall yesterday randy from no age yep absolutely. and um, i had to uh explain to him you know uh i i was trying to get to the bottom of his uh bass playing abilities 
And he said, well, I'm not really a bass player. I'm more of a guitar player, which is totally understandable. Um, but somewhere um, in the, the conversation, I, I believe I brought up like Trevor talking about bass players, Trevor Boulder, who was the bass player in uh, Ziggy Stardust and uh, Spiders from Mars and Dennis Dunaway, who played bass in Alice Cooper's band, like on all of those great, amazing Alice Cooper albums, uh, Jack Bruce, who was in Cream, you know, and then you would you would uh, say somebody like Jaco Pastorius you know, when, when you're starting to move into like electric jazz, you know, if you're if you're talking, if you're speaking in, in jazz speak, you would be talking about like Charlie Hayden. You would be talking about Charlie Mingus. So, you know, it's like we, we, we have and they're all heroes. They're all people that I listen to. They're all people that I love. And, and, and what, what this does is it just it, it, it expands the palette, the musical palette. See, a lot of people think, well, you're in a hardcore band, so obviously you love Exploited and GBH and Cron Chen and, you know, uh, Broken Bones and, you know, the Cro-Mags. And yeah, I, I love all of these bands and appreciate all these bands, but I don't sit around listening to them. You know, there's there's other stuff that I, 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 I getting back to the bass players. I, I, I don't mind listening to Paul McCartney, who's an amazing bass player. Mm-hmm. Where was I today? I was at the dentist office and they played um, <clears throat> yesterday while I was in the chair and I, I'm, I'm getting fitted for a number plate and the the dentist is whistling along to the song and I'm like, this is cool. This is an interesting scenario. I've just driven for the last 45 minutes in 90 degree heat. And here I am sitting in this nice air conditioned office. You know, it's like, yeah, the world sucks, but there's some, there's some great moments going on here. Yeah, if you can find a great moment at the dentist office, Keith, you are a very optimistic soul. I think that's that speaks. And I think also <laughs> what you were saying there goes to like you're one of those rare people that isn't burdened by nostalgia for a particular time or era. You just love music the whole way through. And I actually met you just going like you were going to shows like you were there just to see bands and i've always had so much respect for the fact for well just for you in general as a vocalist but for just the fact that you're not pinned to any one era and you can appreciate bands and and music you know in a way that even i can i love music i i grew up on am radio and uh am radio here in los angeles was actually pretty amazing. We had two stations. Now, when I say AM radio, that would be us getting in the car with my mom and going, driving to wherever we were going to drive. It could have been a 15-minute drive. It could have been an hour-long drive. 
but we would get in the car. The first thing that would happen, even before she would start the car, the radio would be turned on. And so now all of a sudden, we're listening to the Temptations, and we're listening to the Supremes, and we're listening to the Four Tops, and we're listening to Otis Redding, and we're listening to the Seeds, and we're listening to um, the Mamas and the Papas and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and the Who, you know, the, 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 the Who hit at the time when we first started listening to the radio was Happy Jack, which, you know, was, was a very happy song. So um, it, it was very, uh, the, the majority of it was kind of family friendly, you know, and then of course there, there'd be some uh, detours here and there. The Rolling Stones were always good at taking detours. Let's spend the night together, you know, well, even Happy Jack's about a serial killer, right? So even that, even that's kind of a subversive uh, pop song. Um, now, <clears throat> you you need to start over again because I was clearing my throat as you were um, talking to me, oh, and I didn't hear what you said. <clears throat> you, you you have to understand. I just got through eating dinner, and I had a thick sauce with my uh, being a senior citizen. I have a, a a company that delivers food to me. It's very inexpensive. It's all like uh, healthy. So there's no pasta. There's no rice. There's no potatoes. A lot of like ground um, cauliflower. The If they serve a dish that's uh, like an uh, Italian dish, they uh, remove the pasta and replace it with the uh, um, they have this way of uh, putting a, a zucchini, some kind of squash, through a, uh, a device that uh, makes it look like spaghetti. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's actually really amazing. That's what I had for dinner tonight. But it had a red sauce, which was thick, and it the 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 <laughs> it wants to gather in the very <laughs> top of my throat. So I will be clearing my wrote here and there. So getting back to what I uh, said to you, um, I, I ate this this meal, and so I had to clear my throat, and I didn't hear what you had to say. You said something about a serial killer. Well, yeah, Happy Jack um, by by The Who. It's, it's about a serial killer, I believe. But, yeah, but Happy Jack played on the beach with all of the kids. <laughs> 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 uh, well, and even like okay. even the seeds, you know, like the fact that the seeds were playing being played on the radio, there is kind of like that, you know, subversive. Like you're saying, the Rolling Stones are a good example of sort of subversive ideas and subversive culture kind of slipping in through the cracks there. Well, I would um, have to say, you know, people will say, "Well, where did punk start?" You know, when you would think. Uh, any of the harder edged bands back at that time would be considered garage rock and the seeds pushing too hard. That's pretty punk rock. You know, mm -hmm. what was the first time you ever heard the term punk rock? Oh, geez. Um, that would have been probably, um, well, there was a point in time when it was called new wave before it was all punk rock. So, uh, we're, we're talking, we're, we're talking about the, um, uh, 
maybe probably 76, maybe 77. You know, that's when it started to get popularized. But the, but the, the odd thing was we sometimes get into a discussion as to, well, who has the better scene or who had the better scene or, you know, and it's like, well, you had some really great bands in New York, you know, and that that's one of the music hubs of the world. And all of those bands that played at CBGB's, they were all getting signed to major labels, mm-hmm. you know, even, even the Ramones. Now the Ramones were out of all of those bands. They were the most punk rock, even though they were a even though they had pop sensibilities um, <clears throat> or the dead boys, those were uh, out of that, that grouping of bands. They, they were the punk rock bands. I mean, I don't even consider Blondie to be punk rock. Talking heads certainly weren't punk rock because they had other elements that, that took them out of that box, out of that, that clump of bands. Now, where am I going with this? See, here in, in Los Angeles, our our bands were the, the only band that got any major consideration was the Dickies. They got signed to A&M, you know, and then eventually X would get signed to Electra. But um, at, at that time... We're, we're talking about um, the new wave and, and punk rock and punk rock separating itself from new wave. I mean, because there were a lot of bands that we would consider punk rock that called themselves new wave. Now, where are we going with this? <laughs> <laughs> That's, well, actually, I wanted to ask you about stuff kind of before the stuff you're talking about, like, Going back to the the era just before that, when like you know bands like Zolar X and and uh, Imperial Dogs and those types of bands were happening, like '74, like how aware of that stuff were you at that point? Well, um, I, I was aware of both of those bands. See, the the the, the scenario here in Los Angeles was at one point our our musical landscape was kind of a desert. It was, there weren't a lot of bands. And, and you would think, well, Los Angeles is one of the major music hubs in the world. Why wasn't there stuff going on in Los Angeles? And, you know, it, it, it would take a music historian to be able to answer that question. But the fact of the matter is, is that that was part of the reason that punk rock took place here in Los Angeles was that we had, um, there weren't that many bands. I mean, uh, the, the bands that most resembled punk rock, like the Imperial Dogs, um, Don Waller, R.I.P., great yeah. character. That, that band was really happening. Um, and the, 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 the Dogs from Detroit were basically... Um, they, they rubbed elbows with the Stooges and the MC5. So they, they had bits and pieces of that. They, they struck me. They, they were actually, at one time, they were Greg Ginn 
and my favorite band. We, we would go see them anytime they were playing, no matter where they were playing. And they, they resembled uh, a very loud, aggressive um, rock and band. Kind of, they had kind of a who vibe going on too, which that doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so there weren't a lot of bands, and then all of a sudden there was the last. You know, who were we were down in the South Bay. There was nothing going on in the South Bay. I mean, the the Imperial Dogs, of course, but they didn't really play out that much. Mm-hmm. Um, then we had the last who were actually in Hermosa Beach. We, we had nothing going on down in the South Bay. Maybe a handful of bands. You, you'd go out on a Friday night. You would be looking for some originality. And, of course, what you would be getting bonked over the head with would be the top 40, which meant, okay, now we're going to hear some Fleetwood Mac. We're going to hear some – and when I say Fleetwood Mac, they're, they're, they, they, they have their time and place. Early on, they were an amazing band when they were a guitar band with, with Peter Green and Danny Kerwin and Jeremy Spencer. They were actually a really cool band. But then, you know, they started snorting coke and drinking wine coolers and driving around in uh, convertible uh, Mercedes convertibles and partying in Beverly Hills. Um <laughs> I always imagine rumors would be the record we, playing we in would, the background during group sex. The song. Um, uh, if you're if if you're writing a, a okay, well maybe at the A frame, yes. <laughs> or that could be uh, the soundtrack could be like uh, Sergio Mendes in Brazil '66 or whatever year <laughs> he's putting out a record. Um, the look of love is in your eyes. And the girl from Ipanema and. Um, you would think who else would be up there? Uh, I, I don't know if there w- would be any Joni Mitchell or um, maybe for the come down after anybody watching. Like right. Um, <laughs> maybe there would be no music. Maybe there would be a big guy standing at the door pointing t- towards the steps leading out of the A frame. <laughs> like it's time to go. You've had your fun. No more lounging about. Uh, see you here tomorrow night. <clears throat> you know, we, we, um, I, I actually found that ad in the back of a, a popular um, men's magazine here in Los Angeles. And um, our drummer, Lucky Lair, being the creative character, the intellectual that he is, um, that phone number is, 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 was his home phone number. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I think there was probably a time where he regretted being that overly creative. Yeah. And yeah, probably, probably regretted the fact that he used his phone number for that section of the song you know that that song was um actually the music was presented to us by jeffrey lee pierce oh wow really Um, at at the time he he uh was disbanding um 
the creeping ritual mm-hmm. and he was living with me and he said, Keith, I'm, I, I'm going to start a new band. I might use a couple of the guys from the creeping ritual, but I got to start a new band and I need a name for the band. And so I said, well, how about the gun club? And he said, okay. Um, I, I, I wrote a song. I'll give you the song. We'll just, you give me the name. I'll give you the song. And as it turns out, <laughs> later on would find, I, I mean, like when I say later on, I mean, years and years later, actually really listening to the song, like going back and listening to it. It's basically just, um, it's a small world after all, which you you could hear that song playing at Disneyland. <laughs> what about like people like, you know, Kate Congo Powers and, and like, when did you start seeing those people around it at some of these shows? Like when did, was there sort of this idea that there's like a little scene kind of forming? Well, <clears throat> the, the really um, interesting thing about the um, LA Hollywood scene the punk rock scene was that it was starting to, to uh, draw all of these different characters from all of these different backgrounds. See, that was what was so great about the LA punk scene was it, anybody was, anybody was able to show up and be a part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, eventually um, we, we would have the scenario where, uh, we're, we're coming 25 miles. Um, we're 25 miles south, and uh, some of the other beach communities further south than us were like surf kids, skate kids. It's the same thing that happened in Hermosa Beach and in the South Bay. You know, so all of a sudden, our mentality, um, we're not set decorators we're not uh fashion designers we're not people of um with with any kind of like acting skills or coming from theatrics we're not as literary i mean there there there's some people that are like this but for the most part we're we're just like uh beach rats mm-hmm. we're just like gung-ho kids so we 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 bring that mentality and that energy up here to the scene that's already going on now here in hollywood it's it's uh, a, a a much more closely knit everybody knows each other everybody's friends with each other uh, very uh, creative community, not athletes like where we come from. And when I say athletes, see, we we had the we had the point in time where it's like the the jocks in the pickup trucks were, were calling us devos and uh, punk rock sissies, and you know we're gonna we're gonna jump out of our truck and we're gonna kill you and slash your tires and all of that. That, that's that's Jocko Homo, and we um, 
we we were not only around that, but we were also around athletes. And when I say athletes, I mean surfers. You know, there's an athleticism involved in that. Skaters, there's a certain athleticism involved in that. So we were part of an athletic community because we did all of these things. I mean, no, I, w- I didn't play football and I only played one season of baseball and I, I, pl- I did play a season of flag football, you know, but f- for us, any kind of sports um, living, I live really close to the beach. So I was playing volleyball mm. and I was body surfing and skating, you know, riding a bike. That's our athleticism. You know, so normally when you think of jocks, you think of like uh, the, the pitcher with the jaw and the, uh, the quarterback of the team and the guy that stands six, seven and wants to dunk on you. And <clears throat> so we come from a go for it attitude. You know, don't stand around trying to figure things out. Just jump in and get with it. And so we brought that up here to Hollywood. And there were a few people up here that were kind of, it rubbed them the wrong way. Because now their click, they're, they're watching their click and their party scene turn turn into something where it would go from a room where there'd be a hundred, 200, 300, 500 people to being big enough to be placed in a room that holds 1200, 1500 people. And even then that would only last for about three years. And then it would turn into the Olympic auditorium where on, um, one night out of the month, there'd be 5,000 people at the, at the Olympic auditorium. I, I remember the circle jerks played with fear and, and that particular night there was 5,000 people there, but for some reason, and, and I couldn't, uh, I, I, I can't explain it. It just kind of fizzled. It was, it was, there were, there were other things that were starting to happen and the, the violence was starting to take over even more than it was. So, you know, that could explain things. <clears throat> Getting back to Kid Congo, I, I, I go, I go back pretty far with Kid Congo because he played with Jeffrey Lee Pierce was actually, um, he was actually a member of the Creeping Ritual, and then Jeffrey decided, "Well, I, 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 I need to, I need to, I need to kick this up a couple of notches, you know." So his next thing was the Gun Club. But I, 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 I met a lot of these people through Jeffrey. I met a lot of these people through Fast Freddy, who was um, he, he, and Don Waller um, had a. Uh, a uh, fanzine down in the South Bay called Backdoor Man. And they were at a lot of these shows. They were big fans of all of it. They, 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 they caught our drift. They, they uh, latched onto the energy. They knew that something like this needed to happen and embraced it with open arms. 
it really does feel like you, you kind of brought up there like a real cultural clash in the way that you know the the beach the kids that were coming from the beach lived versus the kids downtown kind of lived in like you know very much like right down to the environment they were kind of living in you know being one is like a beach one where you're saying like you know even fishing's a sport like people are taking part in all sorts of physical activities versus downtown which is from the sounds of it like a very insular kind of scene and uh a lot a lot less like you're saying proactive well um, first you have the energy and you have the vibe and, uh, be- because of that, the, um, there's more heat, uh, everything becomes more volatile and crowds are getting bigger and bigger. It's like, okay, what happens next? The, the, the way that it started was that there was not a lot of stuff going on in Los Angeles. I mean, like I said earlier, we, we had a, maybe three dozen bands that were actual, well, we had the Runaways, we had the Quick, um, and then because of that, we started to develop a, a, a bit of a pop scene with 2020, and, but you also have to understand that a lot of these people, um, the, quick, the Quick and the Runaways were from the Valley. Uh, 2020, some of those guys were, uh, a couple of those guys were from Oklahoma. You know, see, uh, the, the, the thing that, that happens here is we're kind of a, a magnet and we attract uh, a lot of people. Well, it's always been the, the same way for the West Coast, you know, going all the way back to the very beginning of the history of North America, you know, in the gold rush and, and uh, um, you know, the wagon trains and everybody moving west. So, um We've always been kind of a, a, an attractive place to to finish up, you know. This is where I want to plant my roots. So anyways, there, there's not a lot of stuff going on here. It's very barren. And you would you'd scratch your head and you would go, yeah, but this place, there's, there's so much stuff going on. Why isn't there more stuff happening musically? And it's really difficult to explain that, you know, maybe it's the cyclical kind of thing, you know, um, the, the, the thing that was happening was there, there were some outstanding bands. They were fairly popular, but they, the, oh God, how do I explain this? They, they didn't like blow up. They didn't become ultra mega major superstars. And I guess it was a vacuum. I guess that would be the that would be the best way to describe it. There was a vacuum, and and the vacuum needed to suck something up, and you know we needed to empty out that dirty, dusty, crusty bag, and that would have been punk rock. I've also wondered like what effect uh, the Manson murders had. Uh, on sort of the perception of youth culture and the way youth culture was taken up specifically in that part of uh, America, you know, obviously all over uh, America, all over the world, I think to a certain extent, but like specifically in that part of America, like I wonder if that had any effect on the lack of a scene 
in the wake of that for a few years. Like it's really around 1974 that it seems like things start picking up again as far as bands start forming, like, you know, like Rodney's Disco and, and the Stooges, the famous Stooges run is also right around there too, right? 73 or 74. You saw that. You saw one of those shows. 73. I, I saw the Stooges in 73. Wow. They, they were, they were, uh, they were pretty much on their uh, last legs. They they they'd made raw power and the record label wasn't doing anything with it and you would have thought um, that their that their uh, popularity would have sprung up due to the fact that they were associated with David Bowie mm-hmm. and it just didn't work out that way. Uh, I guess it it worked out better for Mata Hoople mm-hmm. um, and maybe a little bit better for Lou Reed, but um, the, the Stooges were wasted. The Stooges were pretty much, I guess maybe they were at a point where they didn't like being around each other anymore. I don't know. I can't explain it. The thing with the, the Manson family, we're, we're talking about, um, we, we saw the, end of uh flower power and the summer of love the summer of love i i, I believe that the rolling stones were the ones that that well the rolling stones with the help of the hell's angels were the ones that slammed the door on the summer of love and from that point on it was going to be uh a, a bit hairier a bit scarier a bit dirtier a bit grungier that I think those adjectives that I just used would be great to describe the Manson family. You know, at, at one point, Manson he was living up in Laurel Canyon. He was adored by the beach, some of the Beach Boys, and uh, Neil Young, and you know that that whole scene that came out of Laurel Canyon. There's the getting back to this uh, this cycle scenario where uh, it it comes back around. Um, he wanted to play music, and nobody wanted to play music with him. Yeah. I mean, they all loved him, but uh, didn't want to play with him. But that um, that the way that that situation played a role in our culture. It pretty much, I think what it did was it, it, it made us more on edge and it made us uh, looking over, looking over our shoulders, uh, looking deeper into the shadows. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Cause uh, I, you know, interviewed uh, Don from the germs uh, years ago and he talked about how, him and Frank discussion from the feeders first went to LA hitchhiking to hang out with the Manson family, you know, after, uh, you know, uh, the, the assassination attempt on it with Gerald Ford, right. Um, they, they actually went and hung out with them for a while. And that was his first trip up there. And like, you look at the flyer art by Raymond Pettibon, which references it, or even the same, the summer of love by the Imperial dogs. Like there's like a real, it seems like it, it had a, like kind of a deep sort of lasting scarring effect on, on people that grew up, grew, grew up during it and kind of through it. Well, we, um, 
we live uh, in, in in very much tropical climes, palm trees, lots of sunshine. Everything's well lit up. Plastic surgery. <laughs> Beverly Hills. And there, there, there's only so much of that that you can put up with, you know, maybe, um, be, because of our climate and because of the people that we're surrounded by, it, it kind of makes it easy to get nudged into those darker directions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's also walking around smiles, and, <laughs> you know, the, the most expensive fashions you can wear. Well, it's like what you talked about earlier, you know, obviously with the 2020 guys a much more in a positive way and with Charles Manson a much more in a negative way, but there's sort of that end of the line theory too, where everyone is eventually going to keep going until they hit Los Angeles where you can't go any further after that. So it's kind of like all sorts of people wind up there. Well, and then if you keep going past Los Angeles, there's Hawaii. Yeah, you could. True. Yeah. There's, there's all over there ever been, there ever been a music scene in Hawaii? I don't think that's really a destination uh, well, point for anybody who really wanting like go somewhere and live. Well, I got to send Just you too Keith, expensive. I got to send you the flying fucking a head seven inch. Cause I think you'd love it. And they were like an old Hawaiian punk band back in the day i think i think you'd be real into that single but that's for another another time i'll send you after the show okay uh, going back to like kind of you know in los angeles at that time did uh did you ever get to see vom and, and those bands like they would have been more la based i would imagine i saw vom at the whiskey a go-go and i thought they were fun and uh i didn't take them i didn't take them serious I didn't take them seriously because they weren't serious. They were, it was comedy. It was, um, you know, fear <clears throat> actually started that way where they were mocking punk rock. And then all of a sudden, I guess they saw that they could pay their rent by playing punk rock. So, um, there you go with that. Um, yeah, because Flea, Flea's a blues singer. That's where he comes from. You can tell that. Like when, when you uh, hear him um, uh, singing Beef, 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 Filoni. Oh, uh, Lee Ving, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah sorry, sorry, you said Flea. So I was like, oh, but no, Lee Ving. Oh, 100%. Yeah, you said no, I, uh, I, meant, I, I meant Lee. Now, see, that's what happens. I just got you drinking some orange juice, talking about some more film <laughs> in my throat. A lot of high acidic uh, fruits and vegetables tonight, you know. You're, right, right, right. Um, Wait, which gonna... means I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be sore. I'm going to uh, be achy, breaky, and sore. <laughs> uh, you know, like it, uh, going back to leaving, yeah, because he was like a singer in a Catskills dinner theater before that, uh, before I guess Fear started, right? He's, he's He was like a singing waiter or something, I remember reading. Back in the day, um, so it's, it, so. It, there's a there is this kind of uh, 
you know, like this weird thing that's happening where it, I guess as it's exploding, there's people kind of, kind of latching on or, or, or crossing over or, you know, like even uh, the, the Stern brothers were on the show and talking about how the extremes, you know, were their band before. And they just kind of were like, no, nah, this is not it. And they, and youth brigade kind of was born out of their rejection of that scene. Well, the, the extremes had a bit of a jazz thing going on. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the extremes um, were actually a very interesting band. Mm-hmm. They were actually a really good band, but nothing like the Youth Brigade. No. Not even close. Two, two different types of energies going on there. <laughs> one band i wanted to ask you about um because i just have never been able to find out anything about this band but like the band the adams which was izzy stradlin and the singer from dead fucking last band back in the day did you ever see that band um you know what it, no it wasn't paul davis who, no paul davis guy. yeah um monty monty, monty messick yeah. he's he's the guitar player oh sorry yeah, paul davis it. was yeah, Paul Davis is the vocalist in uh, DFL, Dead Fucking Last, who are actually a really fun band. And I've seen them I've seen them do just some beyond ridiculously knucklehead shit. You know, like throw firecrackers into the slam pit. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I only saw the Adams once. And that's Adams as in, that's spelled A-T-O-M-S, like atom bomb. Yes. Um, they, 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 were, they were good, but I don't, you know, it was like during a period where I was uh, trying to drink myself to death. Okay. Uh, I was trying to drink myself into a blackout every night. So um, I have a period where I could be standing in a room and I could remember some of the bands that I see, but I, I, I wouldn't remember anything about the bands. Yeah, no, I, I totally, uh, I could, I totally uh, can understand that. Also, like, it's amazing all these different bands that you saw. You're the only person I've ever spoken to that had any interaction with the Adams. Most people talk to me about how they're in disbelief about it existing. Um, you know, what was that like though, when, you know, you're going on tour and you're kind of going around America with the circle jerks for the first time. I know I'm jumping all over the place, Keith, but uh, there's just so many questions I've wanted to punish you with for so long. <laughs> so I'm just running through my list. Um, but what was it like going on the first tour and kind of going to these places and seeing kind of the impact the scene you guys had started was having like the fact that there are these like little scenes cropping up all over America that aren't just punk scenes anymore. They're now inspired by, you know, California hardcore. Well, you would be, um, um, you, you would have to take a, a, a step back because we were going to places where there, there were no punk rock scenes. Mm-hmm. We, on, on, uh, unlike our first three or four tours, we were going to some places where a lot of bands at that time didn't go. You know, we were just happy to have a, a gig at, at a place called Nick's Furnace in Mobile, Alabama, which is a, a giant bar with um, four pool tables 
and a stage maybe two feet off of the ground and we're, we're playing and uh, there's, there are a couple of drunk rednecks that are pushing some of the kids around. Now, we would have people that actually knew who we were mm-hmm. show up to some of these shows, but we're talking about playing places and having, uh, if we had a really great show, there would be 50 people there. There would be some places we would go that would actually know who we were, like going to Chicago or going to Detroit, um, but going to Alabama, <laughs> going to Arkansas, and, um, going to even going to some of the cities in Florida. You know, there was a time when they they didn't they didn't have uh, any way of finding out about bands unless. Um, somebody at the record store had the record and played it. And then maybe one of, one of the kids that was in the record store heard it and said, I like this. What is this? I want to buy this. And then he would take it home and he would play it for his friends. And then they would all want to buy it. That, that was how it worked. There was no, you know, there was no internet. There was even in some of these places, there, there was no way of advertising that we were playing. So consequently, it's getting back to the blind, leading the blind. It's just go out there and see what's out there. Make your map of the world and take it from there. You know, it's funny because like Black Flag gets a lot of credit all, or, you know, tons of credit, obviously, in, in press and stuff for being that band that toured and, and, and kind of went out there. But you know, from doing this podcast, everyone that comes on this podcast talks about the Circle Jerks being the band that came to town first, you know, and I think it, it really, you know, you guys don't get enough of the credit for being that band that like, you know, showed up in these towns where there was no punk scene and left and there was a punk scene kind of in your way. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use this as an example. We're playing in Tennessee. We, we have a show in Tennessee. We're, we're playing in what equates to be the student center um, a, across the street from the University of Tennessee. And uh, in, in the student center, there's the little, uh, uh, maybe the little library. There's the um, deli where you could get a pizza or you could get a submarine sandwich or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or what have, you know, you get a Coke and some French fries, all of that kind of stuff. So we play the show, we get through playing. There, there's probably 40 people there, 50 people. Um, and the, the, there, there happened to be a couple of kids that were there. And when I say kids, I don't mean like seven, eight-year-olds. I mean like 14, 15, 16-year-olds. And one of them comes up to us and introduces himself and said, that was really cool. It's so great that a band like you would come here. Um, I'm, um, I'm having a, my parents have left town and I'm having a party on Sunday. You, you want to come and play the party? And we said, of course, because we didn't know where we were going. Uh, I think we had like 
two days off after the, the show in Tennessee. So where are we going to go? So now all of a sudden we have the opportunity to play a party and who knows how many people are going to be at that. But we also managed to talk our way into a gig at a pizza parlor. Um, I think we, we played the, the student center on a Friday. We played, we, we ended up playing the pizza parlor on a Saturday. Now, how many people do you expect or do you think we're at the pizza parlor? Probably 15, 20, yeah. you know, and then we play the, we play the party in, as it turns out, it's in a cul-de-sac out in the suburbs, like 20 miles outside of town. Um, bunch of, bunch of kids skating around and riding their bikes and throwing Frisbees and, playing softball and all of that wonderful stuff and the barbecue and we set up in the garage there there's like 10 kids hanging out and uh, ultimately uh by the time you get through playing there, there's maybe 20 30 kids and it's okay we, we would do a lot of stuff like that you know, a, lo- a lot of these tours in the very beginning were um Give me a blindfold. Give me a handful of darts, and put a put a map of the United States up on the wall, and I'll just uh, throw these darts, and and wherever they land is where we're going to go. Go on some of these tours where our our whoever our booking agent was was basically just a friend who thought he would book a bunch of shows, and then we got to the point where we were fortunate in that. Um, as more bands started to tour, we had a thing where everybody was passing around corporate credit cards, corporate phone numbers, like use this number, but you have to use it from a telephone booth. Don't sit in your friend's living room, make a bunch of calls with this card because somebody's going to come and they're going to bust your friend. So we would, we would book shows as we were, moving along or we were heading east you know it would, it would it would be like we would know that we would be playing a show in chicago we know that we would be playing a show in detroit we know that we would be playing a show in cleveland we know that we would be playing a show in new york city uh, are we gonna are we gonna be able to play a show in pittsburgh where are we gonna play in pittsburgh uh, maybe another sandwich shop or a pizza parlor um, maybe we, maybe we're going to be playing in a bar where they want us they want us to play at uh, ten o'clock at night, and we we get there early enough and say, well, uh, is there any way that we could play an early all ages show? You know, hoping that maybe twelve kids will show up, twenty kids will show up. Yeah, yeah. So like really kind of like you're you're doing what you know my my band and, and many punk and hardcore bands kind of still fall in the footsteps of doing you know it's still that kind of system you know like it's it, and doa taught you guys right like or doa was the first band to kind of show up doing this kind of like passing on numbers thing doa you know and then we would get out there and, and we we'd get to one of these fun cities and we would meet up with the uh, um, 
somebody that could have been a friend of Black Flag or somebody that could have been a friend of DOA, somebody that we knew of, we'd, we'd heard through the grapevine, and then they'd, they'd give us... Here, here's a few numbers. Here's a here's here's some uh, here's some venues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so here we are. Uh, sometimes calling a venue and and uh, pleading for the opportunity to maybe play a couple of sets, so we could play to like younger people and not just play to all of the drunks who probably aren't going to appreciate us anyways. <laughs> a lot of that was going on. <clears throat> what was it like when you got to like Chicago or like Detroit, like these places that did kind of have burgeoning scenes happening? Like, were you like, were you aware of like, you know, the necros or negative approach or, or, or even minor threat, like before arriving in these cities? All of, all of those bands that you mentioned. And here's yeah. the thing. Um, they, that all of these bands we're, we're finding out about each other via fanzines mm-hmm. like flip side or slash, um, <clears throat> touch and go. Um, so we're all aware of each other and that also played a role in advertising for shows because what we would do with all of these bands is make sure that they were on the bill with us, mm-hmm. which meant now we know that they're, they're, they're going to be people that are going to be printing flyers. They're going to be passing out flyers to their friends. You know, hopefully the snowball effect takes place, you know, call a friend, have that friend call two of his friends, have, have those two friends, call four of their friends, you know, and just hope that it, uh, it blossoms into a, a, a happening, you know, so we're not just, we, we get to a major city and we're not just playing in front of 12 people or 20 people, mm-hmm. you know, we could be playing in front of 75 people, a hundred people get to New York and, and be playing in front of two or 300 people. Washington DC first time we played the 930 club it was pretty much sold out and we played with minor threat which certainly helped <laughs> well but like you know the teen idols had come to California and seen you guys and like that's what inspired them to kind of kick up everything a notch right when they went back there so it's almost like you know like I guess that would be like seeing the seeds you planted kind of blossom playing DC at that show we were spreading the message <laughs> to all the, to all the kids. That's we're right. all going to hold hands, and it's going to be hands around the world. And then we're going to start skipping and jumping, and um, the sun will shine, and all the birds will tweet, and the world will be a beautiful place. Well, I wouldn't go that far about the world being a beautiful place, but it did kind of happen that way. Like, you know, group sex is something that, you know, traveling around the world, like if I'm in someone's house you know and they're a punk rocker there's a, a like a 90 percent chance they're going to have that record on their shelf like it is kind of a it did be kind of come kind of become a, a a global thing you know hands around the world through group sex <laughs> <laughs> don't tell that to your parents <laughs> <laughs> well I, i've told you about this my 
the my stepfather got into a huge fight. I, I'll never forget this at the dinner table because my brother and I wanted to see uh, the circle wanted to see Circle Jerks. You guys, when you were playing Toronto in the '90s on the on the uh, first reunion tour, and uh, we're we're super excited. You know, where we had this all planned out. My stepfather, who was an asshole, a huge asshole was like, I don't want you guys seeing some come in your fucking face band. And he was so upset. He was crying, screaming at us about this come in your face band, the circle jerks. <laughs> that would be, um, that, that would, that would make a great, uh, television commercial. <laughs> it would be. That, that could be, that is the best ad for, you know, if I wasn't a fan of you guys already by that point, that would have sealed the deal. <laughs> And actually, you guys didn't make that show, uh, unfortunately. I think you guys broke up just before I read, read in your book. But uh, at that show, that was the first time that Mike and I from Fucked Up ever saw each other. And uh, we we very have both very distinct memories of seeing each other at that show. So it did set up the rest of my life, even in your absence. So we played a role in the soundtrack of your life. You definitely have many, many times over. Um, on those early shows, you guys were doing like 30, or on those early tours, I should say, you guys were doing like 30 songs a night. That must have been brutal. Like that must have taken a lot out of you every single night. Was it just like the same set or are you guys mixing it up? Uh, we, we mixed it up quite a bit. Um, one of the things uh, that I've fallen into lately, um, see, b back then we, we could rehearse. And like the, the Black Flag rehearsal scenario was we, we rehearsed every night. If we weren't going to see shows, we were rehearsing. The Circle Jerks, not so much. But the 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 situation with us was and with both of those bands it was like we didn't have a lot of songs when i when i quit black flag we our live set was like 16 songs and we were working on like three or four other songs with with the circle jerks our scenario was completely different we we um, had shows booked while we were still writing songs, and uh, at a certain point, it was like, "Fellas, we got a we got a show coming up in two weeks, and we've got like eight or nine songs. We 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 we've got some work to do here, you know. Uh, did uh, did, did you guys write any riffs while you were in any of the other bands that you were in? And that, that's when all of a sudden there were a bunch of uh, riffs being tossed into the pot. Okay. Now, uh, unfortunately, um, I, I was drinking and, and doing a lot of drugs. So I wasn't really paying attention because if, if I really, if I had set my mind to these musical bits I would have known that well that's a that's a Red Cross riff um, that's an Angry Samoans riff um, yep that one is also 
uh, a Red Cross riff. <laughs> but I wasn't paying attention, and, and it was like we, we needed to come up with like seven, eight more songs so we weren't just up there for 10 minutes, which didn't really, that didn't really bother me. But it was like we, we, we needed more songs. Mm-hmm. And one of the first Circle Jerk shows, um, we really pissed off a lot of the guys in some of our former bands. <laughs> when we got up there and actually were playing some of their songs, I mean, granted, we switched things around and made things, chopped things up a little bit more and sped things up. But consequently, what happened was we pissed a lot of people off. As it turned out, and I would eventually find this, I would, I would, I would eventually find this out by being in a band with Stephen McDonald that the uh, McDonald brothers, Red Cross, they didn't want to do it anymore, and they told Greg, "Look, you know, you use these songs however you want to use them." That was pretty much what they told them. So Greg took him up on it. <laughs> Greg didn't hesitate. Okay, so get, getting back to us and and the uh, varying set lists, there, there would be a new set list every night. It's like, okay, let's take 10 minutes to write a set list. You know, and we weren't really thinking about, well, this note, uh, this note fades out and it would be great for... This, this song to happen right after it we we didn't really we didn't really like dissect the songs and get creative in that way we just make a set list and if it worked we we we'd play it two or three nights in a row or stick with it for a week or what have you there was there was a lot of shuffling around that certainly didn't happen with off see with off we never rehearsed so it's like Okay, well then let's not get too creative with these set lists. What we did with off was we did everything in blocks, like uh, four or five song blocks, and then maybe remove one block and put another block in there and change blocks around. But with the circle jerks, it was just, uh, it was very fly by night. It was just, fucking grab it and run with it getting back to those tours those weren't like two week three week long tours those tours that we were going out with going out on in the very beginning they were like some of those were like two and a half three months i I remember going on a couple of four month long tours oh my god you know when you're living in a van and hoping to uh, hoping to uh, make some money at the door to maybe be able to put gas in the vehicle. And we weren't selling merch. We didn't know about selling merch. It was like just, okay, getting back to the blind leading the blind. You know, that whole scenario. So when was the just play it as it lays. I'm not very, not, 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 not early on. It, it was, uh, uh, very early on, it was we didn't have the money to print. We didn't have enough money to print T-shirts. We didn't know about selling T-shirts at uh, venues when we played. Mm-hmm. 
that that didn't happen until that was years later. We we really started to make a killing on merch when um, we had Keith Clark, Adolph Tibor playing drums with us, where he was like a real manager. He was like a real businessman. He was the guy that does everybody's taxes. That's when we that's when we started having like two, three, four, five thousand dollar nights selling merch. You know, like we we'd pull into the metro in Chicago. And we'd sell like three thousand dollars worth of t-shirts. Mm-hmm. So that allowed us to start staying at Motel Six. Where each guy actually had a bed each night. Mm-hmm. And it makes that makes a huge would, difference on the road. Yeah, and that's when we would take out. Uh, um, uh, uh, we'd bring a guy along with us who that was his only job was just to set up the merch, sell the merch, count the merch, count. You know, you count it in, you count it out, you mark everything down. Uh, you, you you call and order more merch when you get low. I mean, but he would also, uh, before he started setting up, he would also help move equipment. I mean, everybody was moving equipment. No rock stars. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be until later on. We <laughs> <laughs> would have guitar techs and bass techs and drum techs and it, monitor it, that- man and front of house and all that fun stuff. You guys are kind of figuring it out, right? Like, you know, like not having merch in the beginning and then all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, we could sell t-shirts and make money here. It's like, there is no blueprint for this style of band until, you know, the, the punk bands make this sort of like the idea of like a working band where you're not like just some local band, but you're also not a rock star band. You're a band that, you know, like a, like a working band. Working class band. Um, and, one of our mottos uh, and one of the things that I will say to this day when, when it comes to people asking about, well, what do I need to do to when, when I'm in a band? Because I know that I'm going to be a big star and I'm going to be making lots of money. And it's like, no, 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 no. Hit the brakes. <laughs> Don't give up your day job. Yep. That's probably the most important thing going on for you. Yeah, definitely. But like, it's also something where, you know, like all the bands that make it are also all the bands that did quit their day jobs, you know, where where the bands that threw themselves into it a hundred percent, like, you know, how else are you going to carve that, you know, niche in history, unless you're doing four month tours, you know, unless you're like grinding, you know, you have to put the work in. Well, and there's also day jobs where you're not working uh, nine to five. You know, there, there are certain day jobs where why do you think a lot of uh, people that are in bands or actors, actresses, writers, uh, people of that ilk work in restaurants or work in bars? Mm-hmm. There's a high turnover. There's a revolving door that the, 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 um, the, the amount of people that come and go, I, I I've worked, I've worked in a couple of restaurants, no skin off my ass, 
I've washed dishes. I've scrubbed floors. Uh, I had the Monday shift where nobody was there, which meant I got to break out the bleach and uh, bleach down the the uh, lavatories, uh, made sure that there was no no gunk growing behind the giant walk-in refrigerators. Um, you know, I, I, I've had my share of what you would call menial jobs, but it's like somebody has to do it. And what are you going to do when you're not playing music? Mm -hmm. You know, working class band, like you said. There you go. There you have it. Uh, Keith, this has been amazing. And would you come back at some point in the future for a part two? Fuck no. I hate you, man. <laughs> this, is, this is the worst conversation I've ever had. Damien, all you need to do is contact me. And because uh, because I know, you, dude, you, you, you probably have a notebook full of questions to ask me. Oh my God, I have so many more. Like, there's just so many other bands <laughs> I want to ask you about. And I just, I could punish you forever. Okay, but, but first, first and foremost, we, we need, I need to, uh, because I've got to use this um, as my platform to advertise the 40th anniversary of the Circle Jerks Group Sex record that we've been talking about. Um, what, what we've done to uh, sweeten the deal is Greg Hetson found a cassette tape of uh, a recording of us arguing and fighting and <laughs> it, it's nine it's not nine minutes long and I think in nine minutes we play I want to say we play four or five songs so we spend more time like arguing and fighting and hey come on guys let's we're here to rehearse <laughs> it, it, it was um, uh, a cassette tape recording of one of our first rehearsals. He seems to think when I say he, I mean, Greg Hudson seems to think it might've been our second or third rehearsal, but well, I, I can, I can, I can tell everybody that it was our first rehearsal and nobody will know the difference. No, no. But that I, would make me liar. But anyways, um, we, we're, uh, we have a 40th anniversary, um, reissue. Uh, we've souped it up a bit. There's, uh, there's, uh, little mini interviews or blurbs or I, uh, I, they came to me and said, so what are we, what are we going to do to make this like extra special? And I said, well, how about if I make a list of people and, uh, we have our guy Bennett, who used to work at the FYF Fuck Yep Fest? Uh, we we have him compile um, blurbs. Let 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 me make a list. I made a list of about seventy people. Now, of course, Bennett's not going to be able to talk to all seventy people because uh, some of them are going to be busy. Some of them don't care. Some of them are just. Uh, too snooty and snotty and too too big too much of big shots to do it and I'm just being facetious um, but we 
we we got a lot of really cool people and we got Alex Cox and uh, Shepard Ferry. Uh, I actually had um, run into Chris Robinson, who's the lead vocalist from the Black Crows, who I, I'm a, a fan of. Mm -hmm. I had um, a scenario with him in a bar in West Hollywood. I was DJing, and between DJ shifts, there's bands, and some, some of these bands aren't worth sticking around to listen to. So I would go into the downstairs bar, and one night going into the downstairs bar, I was uh, some, some, uh, a couple of hands reached out of the shadow and grabbed me and pulled me towards them. And all of a sudden, here I am standing with Chris Robinson, and he said, Keith, I need to tell you, uh, I've seen you around here and there in a few places, and I never had the opportunity to talk to you, but I would like to take this opportunity to tell you that the, the Black Crows, before we started playing music, you were one of our big influences. Whoa, I had like, no idea about them. Yes, well, here's the thing, Damien, here's the thing. Because the music, you think, well, it's a certain genre. It probably pisses a lot of people off. It's not that popular. It, the, the music has touched a lot of different people in different ways. Like the guys in Los Lobos. Mm -hmm. when, whenever I get around them, like Louis, Louis Perez, it's like, Keith, my kids, I play the circle jerks, and my kids, now it's all they want to listen to. You know, it's like... It's stuff like that. So now all of a sudden you have like Happy Tom from Turbo Negro. Now that, of course, makes more sense because they are a bit closer to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But they're um, – I just posted on the Circle Jerks Facebook page, Gary Panter, the, the great artist who did a lot of artwork in Slash Magazine, did a, uh, a sketch of Philip K. Dick. Now, Philip K. Dick is the guy who's responsible for Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. He's the guy that wrote Blade Runner. You know, do, do androids dream of sheep? Mm -hmm. do, do androids dream of robot sheep? You know, or uh, Minority Report. You know, one of the one of the one of the great modern science fiction writers. He's no longer with us, R.I.P. But in Slash in Slash Magazine, they get to talk, and they're doing a uh, long interview with him. And and the guy who's interviewing them at one point says, "So, uh, when, when you get ready to listen to music, who are you listening to?" And the first words out of his mouth were, "The Circle Jerks." Uh, I'm like, okay, you know. Um, <laughs> I would think that somebody like Kurt Vonnegut would could even appreciate some of the stuff we were saying. You know, it, you you just never know who's listening to your music. You know, we we know all of the punk rocks are listening to it. That's fantastic. That's great. More power to them. But there are other people in in doing other things that listen to the music that can find it just as inspiring. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and people know who's real. There, 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 there are people out there when they see certain things or they read certain things or they hear certain things, they know that it's real. You know, there, there are certain people that are able to like just cut through the bullshit. Let's just get right to it. Let's not dick around. Anyways, we have this booklet with some photos and flyers and uh, a, a lot of blurbs from a lot of fun people. And we're also including um, Lucky Lehrer in the very beginning decided to make um, it. It's a little fanzine. I guess it would be the closest it basically is an advertisement uh, uh, uh you know like you you get a uh say you want to go to somewhere in italy and you go to the you, you go to the travel agent and there's there's pamphlets and yeah, brochures and and yeah, yeah absolutely yeah but it, it would kind of be like a it would be kind of a a travel booklet only with pictures and flyers and um, there, there's, uh, uh, his phone number and his address and <laughs> all sorts of fun stuff like that. Like, well, if you want to, if you're interested and you like to circle jerks here, get a hold of us because we'll, we'll play, you know, we, we want to play that will, that will, that will also come with the, the first batch of, um, repressings. Well, the record is 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 perfect, and it's worth uh, worth owning your collection just for the greatest one-two punch in punk rock history. With I just want some skank into Beverly Hills, which crushes me to this day every time I hear it. Well, thank you. It's also but that doesn't mean I'm going to buy you dinner the next time I see you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a okay as long as. Uh, as long as you're the company, I will gladly pay for that dinner, Keith. I promise you. Um, but like you know, like you were saying, it's 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 truth telling music, and it pulled back, you know, like that that facade of Los Angeles in a real way, you know. And like X would do it, of course, too, with Los Angeles and and something. But it's like so much of of you know pop culture is about myth building around, especially Hollywood and in L.A. But you know, punk rock. LA punk rock kind of like tore that back and tore it down and was like, no, here's what's, here's what's really going on. Getting into the dirt. Yes. And anytime Keith, you want to come back on the show and get back in the dirt with me, the door is always open. Okay. Awesome. I love you, brother. Thank you you for your time. I love you too, Keith. Thank you for coming on the show. And any, any time you want to come back on the show, he knows, he knows all we have to do is bust out the rotary dial phone and figure out how to make it happen. Oh, but it is worth it. I love that guy. That, that is a major, major hero of mine. See, he can't tell me that I can't call him a hero now because he's not here. And speaking of heroes, Next week on the show, we continue the Los Angeles love going in celebration of that new punk as fuck video series that I've dropped with Flood. Once again, check that out at Flood Magazine or on YouTube or on social media. Check it out. Check it out. We have another legend from the LA punk scene. Next week on the show, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. 
one of my favorite filmmakers, probably my favorite filmmaker, if I was really going to be honest with myself about it. Next week on the show, Penelope Spheris will be here. And get your mind ready, because we are talking about everything from Roger Corman to Sharon Osbourne and everything in between. It is a hot one. It is a fantastic conversation with one of the coolest to ever fucking do it. Um, yeah, I can't hype this thing up enough to you. And and I know even if I oversell it to you, it will still be better than I'm selling it to you with because she is that fucking cool. She is, oh, this is a good one. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. You got to protect trans people's lives. Uh, go out there right now, get informed, get involved, stand up, sign petitions, donate money if you can. Uh be in per- show up in person, show up to demonstrations, just, just try and lend your voice because it keeps coming back to this on the show. Uh, around the world right now, there is a return of some pretty heinous ideas. There's a re-rise of fascism in some places and shit, that stuff's got to be smashed again. There's just no question about it. Fuck Nazis forever, forever, forever. Um, also, uh, go out there and sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. So just, just sign that card. Also make your own culture. You know, this week, uh, was a checkerboard day for, which is a day where Vans donates a, a bunch of money to causes around mental health. And one of their big things that they've been really trying to talk about is the fact that, you know, you, you need to get out there and be creative because that really does help you deal with mental health things, <laughs> issues, uh, symptoms, whatever you want to describe it. The, 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 the burden of mental health is helped by creative expression, you know, and I really have felt that we've talked about, well, I've talked about it on this show forever. Go out there and make your own culture because it really will help. Uh, and thank you to Vans for, for believing in the show and, and helping me and, and, uh, yeah. Okay. That's it. Uh, I'll see you next week on the show or next episode on the show. It's a doozy. It is a doozy. Uh, check out Steve Albini, Don Bowles and myself at Roscoe's chicken and waffles. You will not regret it. I promise you, you will not regret it. And that's it. I love you. Stay safe. See you next episode. Goodbye. Hi. <laughs>